0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. This week on our panel, we have Paige Niedringhaus.
1: Hey, everybody.
0: TJ Van Tol. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're talking to Maxim Ivanov. Hello. Now, did I say your name anywhere close to correct?
2: Almost. I'm Maxim Ivanov. Ivanov. Okay.
0: You want to just introduce yourself real quick, let
2: people know who you are, why you're famous, all that stuff? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not famous. I uh, am front-end developer working in Mojang right now. Two years ago, I think, I was working in DICE, working in Battlefield 5. And before this, I was working on some websites but what- whatnot. Like, right now, I'm mostly proud about participating in those game development things. I live in uh, Stockholm, Sweden. I moved here about three years ago from Russia. And I have a YouTube channel. And uh, a website, which I don't update anymore. (laughs) And that's, I think that's it.
0: Wait, so you work for Mojang? I I need to get my 14-year-old in here so we can geek out because he loves Minecraft.
2: (laughs) Yeah, as you can see, I have a bunch of things from from Minecraft because one of the best things about working in Mojang is that you get free swag. Like, not anymore because we're (laughs) on lockdown, like we work from (laughs) home. But before that Corona thing happened, uh, we would regularly get some, some, some souvenirs. Like one of them is this sheep from. Probably it doesn't oh, make yep. sense to show it all because the podcast doesn't have video, right? People No, to- we're not, we're not going to share the it's video. Okay.
3: This, is, this is exclusive content. This is
2: just for us. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for the listeners, I can describe this ship. It's a square cubical ship that not really closely resembles a, a real animal, but. Well, it's it's green and, and cubicle. It's nice.
1: <laughs> it's super cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think I want to work for your company now. If I get free stuffed animals like that, that's really fun.
2: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it, it's possible uh, in Redmond because there is Redmond office of Mojang. I don't know if they get free swag. Maybe it's only Stockholm. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe.
0: You'll that's have to right. Because uh, Microsoft. Microsoft bought Mojang
2: several years ago. Yes, exactly. Actually, my page, my uh, like uh, the access page that opens the doors, is, it, 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 it has Microsoft, not Mojang.
0: Interesting. So you said you're a front-end developer, but now we're talking about uh, building games. Can you actually do that with front-end tech? Or is really? that kind of work is one thing and front-end stuffs another thing?
2: Yeah, that's the funny thing that being a front end developer, I almost exclusively worked with React for the past two, two years at least. And the thing about React is that it allows you to build the um, component tree and then you can render it basically anywhere. Like, most known example is React Native, where we take this tree uh-huh. and we render it through uh, native elements. Another example in game development is Battlefield 5, that not only 5 Battlefield, from Battlefield 2, they started to use. React to create uh, UI, some parts of UI at least, and then now in Mojang, some parts of UI in game are also done through uh, using React. So it is possible. Uh, It's even actually I think you can you can find demos showing that you can even build games using React because well if you can if you can send whatever React spits out to some custom renderer and then. You can have some elements, and they're interactive. You can build a game with this.
0: It. It's not really an approach, but it works. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was funny. I was like, do you want to talk about your TypeScript book? But th- this is so fascinating to me. I mean, do you, so you have your own custom renderer then that works all this stuff out?
2: Um, Mojang, well, you mean in Mojang? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, that's that's um, what interesting could I tell you about this? Actually, last Friday when I was um, hosting this meetup with, with Mojang, um Paolo Ragonia, who works in a UI team there, he was actually explaining how did they manage to create their own render for React components. If you're re- I-, I could actually leave a link, I think. Maybe it makes sense. Do, do podcast listeners follow links? that we- Yes, yeah, they if- do. Yeah, that, then I can, I can try to do it now or I can do it later. I-, I can write it, write it down and provide it.
0: Yeah, that would be great. And then... I mean, if you're not the person working on the renderer, I would love to get somebody on to talk about building a game renderer for React. Is that, yeah, that's... I
1: can
2: actually, yeah, I can talk to him and he probably can tell you more. But the thing is about custom renders, uh, it's quite well explained by, oh, I forgot her name from, from, from Facebook. She made a good talk about uh, making custom renders. So what Paulo did in, in his talk last Friday was he, he, he created a custom renderer that takes every element and creates a, and transforms it to a marquee. Do you remember what is marquee element?
3: Uh, the, the good old web scrolling? Yeah, marquee? yeah, yeah of yeah, course.
2: Exactly. So uh, this React render takes whatever you, you, you put into it, like div, uh, IMG, like whatever, any tag, it just renders them as a uh, marquee. It's quite easy. What was
0: the talk you were talking about, the one by Sophie Alpert? Yeah, exactly.
2: Sophie Albert talked about it. So it's, it's nothing, nothing, no, it's not a rocket science. It's well-documented how to do it. But then it allows you to do crazy things. I don't know why don't, is, there, is not there such a product like React Render for Unity. Because making interfaces in React is the easiest thing. I think this mental model of like components, it's a tree that you render other components inside of them. This is the most natural and easiest, thing, uh, easiest way to think about UI, at least comparing to any other UI toolkit. Because I used to be an iOS developer before, and I remember how it was done back then. And uh-huh. like, I used to work with Backbone, and like, React is the easiest to understand and to have a grasp of what is going on with your UI. Right.
1: That's actually what I wondered. I thought that Unity was pretty much like the be-all, end-all for game development. So to hear that you're using React is really, that's a really cool thing to know.
2: Having custom render is the easy, like the simplest part of having <laughs> React in your game. Problem with it comes if you want to support consoles. Because you will need to have some JavaScript uh, engine there. Yep. And um, I don't remember what exactly, how is it solved in uh, Mojang because there we're using some proprietary engine to, to, to do it for us, to, to, to have JavaScript embedded somewhere. But for example, in DICE with Battlefield, it was, it was a problem that they had to solve themselves. Like to, I think it was JavaScript Core. Is this how it's called? This, this JavaScript? Yeah, core. on iOS devices. Not, not only iOS, but basically, whenever, whenever you need to run JavaScript along with your like, C++ or whatnot, uh-huh. uh, you, you, you can use, for example, JavaScript Core. And it can be problematic, for example, on PlayStation and the other consoles because it creates vulnerabilities and sandboxing issues and such. So this is the biggest problem there, not really like, taking React and rendering it out, but like, providing JavaScript engine to be able to even launch and doing, doing, doing run React, that's the biggest problem. It's interesting because we've, so I
3: used to work on the Datascript the team, which is doing something very similar to React Native. And what we did is we bundled up JavaScript core on iOS or V8 on Android. And it worked, but there, there's some repercussions from doing that. Um, it's, actually, Android was our hardest challenge because Android apps are typically kind of small. And that's one of the like, appeals of the Android ecosystem. And V8 is multiple megabytes, and you usually ex- actually have to ship multiple versions of V8 to support like, different Android architectures. And it creates a, a huge hassle uh, because most of these platforms just don't have a, a native JavaScript renderer, so you kind of have to just package
0: one up, which can work, but it's also a bit messy too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting too, just doing a quick search, I found uh, two NPM packages that look like they're relatively... Current that render React into uh Unity. One is React Game Engine and the other one is React Unity. I think it's WebGL. I'll put links in the chat so they'll wind up in the show notes. But yeah. To speak to this a little bit further, though, I'm a little curious. Like, what what is your workflow then? Like, do you wind up having to write some C code and some JavaScript? Or is all your work React and then it, you know? You have a component that it just renders into native whatever it is that the game engine uses
2: okay here i'm not the best person to ask about it but okay uh, i can tell a little bit probably if i can i don't know thing mm-hmm. is that it's not that everyone have to write c++ code but some someone have to be dedicated to to, to do this because right, right. you end up with this client server architecture where you have your game as a server that can provide data And it sort of becomes like remote server and your local server with with data, like your C++ part becomes one kind of server, you have JavaScript, and then you have a remote server where you can also fetch data. And what is interesting there is how can you organize talking, like the the communication between JavaScript part and C++, because, for example, Mm -hmm. in DICE, there was some custom protocol where they were sending messages through inter-process protocol and in Mojang, as far as I know, they're referencing same, like they're sharing a piece of memory. So they're basically just, yeah, they're basically sharing memory between each other, not even like sending messages, but reading from the same section.
0: That's never caused problems in programming in the
2: past. Exactly.
0: So, so what part of the game are you writing then with react? I guess that's, are you writing the logic or are you writing, you know, something that interfaces oh. with the renderer or something else?
2: No, 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 only, only interfaces. And that's okay. for me, I work in the web team. Uh, it, it's the team that doesn't even touch, uh, game, game really. Oh, okay. Content. What I work with is basically, uh, your, you can probably call it admin panel, like, I don't know, like account and profile uh, pages. Uh-huh. And some parts, some some codes that I wrote is being used in game-related things like localization. I wrote um, our uh, internal library to localize uh, components. We're using gettext to work with it. Have you heard about this old-school way of localization? It's GNU GNU gettext. It's quite an old thing. cool thing about it is that it's good with um, resolving... Conflicts in your translations, like when you when you have some something questionable, like uh, the system doesn't really know should should you change some some string or not, it will safely notify you about that instead of breaking your translation thing. And it allows a very quite good degree of automation. So yeah, this is the only code that is written by me and is share is kind of used, in, for example in launcher, but otherwise it's in the web.
0: Nice. All right, well, let's, let's shift gears and go ahead and talk about TypeScript. And yeah, maybe we'll circle back to this or you know, have the person who wrote your uh, renderer on to talk about how we can make React into gaming systems and, and what goes into that. But yeah, so you wrote this book. I'm a little curious what the story is on your TypeScript on, in React book. I'm still, I'm still in the process.
2: So this, this new year, I felt like I, I want to write a book. And thing is that there is this uh, publisher called NewLion.co. They used to mm-hmm. be full-stack I.O., mm-hmm. I think, full-stack publishing house. Something, right. Something. And they have magnificent book covers. It's amazing. They, they're so, so <laughs> great. I was looking, like, I, I love the view one, for example, with this deer in the forest or something. I love the React one, which is sort of vaporwave, and there is this dolphin jumping out of the pool. It's so, it's so freaking cool. Thing is the, there is this TJ TJ, what is his name? TJ Fuller, I think. No, what? wait a second. I need to. Yeah, exactly. It's TJ Fuller. It's it's an artist. He's not very popular, popular. He has like five-eight hundred followers. Let me share his uh, profile on in, in the Instagram. These covers are uh, amazing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they are <laughs> so good, they're so bizarre and, and like and great at the same time. It's so awesome. And I was dreaming that I will. Like I will somehow find him and like maybe write a book and like order a cover from him. But then I thought hmm, the easiest way to get this sort of cover would be to just write a new line and say like, hey guys, let's write a book. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I did this new year and I had a bunch of ideas. What could we write about? But one of them was uh, React plus TypeScript because my this is my current stack. The uh, the thing that I work with is TypeScript and React, and uh, I I really like it because. For example, when I joined DICE and I had to learn a lot about like, the whole structure, the whole system that they have there. And it was a huge monorepo because they, they basically stored all the projects starting from mobile games to all the Battlefields interfaces in one monorepo. And they were reusing a lot of the code. And you can imagine it, it's a lot of code, UI-related. Mm-hmm. And, and like, when I joined them, I didn't know uh, TypeScript. I was working only with JavaScript. But I think now that if it would be written in JavaScript, their code base, it would be harder for me to figure out how it works and get familiar with it. Because when you work with TypeScript, it gives you so much, so many suggestions, so much additional information of how to run specific function. What arguments do you have to provide? It saves you so much time when you like start using it. So I was uh, pretty much inspired to uh, share this joy of using TypeScript. By writing, Gotcha. Now I'm curious, Paige and TJ,
0: are you guys using TypeScript?
1: We are not. We're using straight JavaScript, ES6, ES7.
3: And we are mostly, uh, well, actually, so Kendra React is written entirely in TypeScript. So at Progress, we like to say we were using TypeScript before it was cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's just interesting to me because as I talk to more and more people, I'm seeing more and more people adopting TypeScript. And we're also seeing in some of the other communities, I mean, Angular just whole hog adopted TypeScript. If you want to write Angular with ES6 or ES5 and you're just into that kind of pain, you can do it. <laughs> but it it really, I mean, all of the examples are TypeScript and they don't even try to teach you how to do it the other way. Uh, Vue 3, my understanding is, is that they've adopted TypeScript as well. And so, you know, seeing it pick up. And, and I've talked to a, quite a number of people in React and React Native that are writing their stuff in, in TypeScript as well. So it's making inroads, even if it's not kind of the blessed way to do things. So yeah, I, I think there's definitely a growing market of people out there that want to learn TypeScript if they haven't already. I'm curious
3: if anybody here has seen any stats on usage of TypeScript within the React space, because when I when I say we mostly use TypeScript because we we're basically building a library for others to use we sort of have to accommodate everybody that wants to come to us and so one right. thing we struggle with is like well should our demos and samples be written with TypeScript because like we write with TypeScript but should our samples be that way like what's the average person that's going to show up on this web page going to want to see and so like at least from what I've seen TypeScript is growing, but it's still kind of a minority within the React ecosystem. So I'm curious what everybody else thinks or how they, everybody else use that?
1: Well, we've been using a design component library called Ant Design for our internal application that we're building at work. And just recently, they did a release upgrade. They went from v3 to v4. And all of their V4 examples on their website, which are really well documented, they now have both TypeScript and JavaScript if you want to see code sandbox samples. But the default actually starts out in TypeScript. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's an indication of the trends or if it was just a decision that the team made that they wanted to start the default with TypeScript, but they have both. So maybe that's something that your team could include if they have the, the time and the bandwidth to do both both types.
2: So Paige, you say that, you pro- that they provide both example in, uh, examples in JavaScript and TypeScript at the same time.
1: Yes. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. switch between the two based on your language of choice.
2: That's cool.
0: Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid, you would uh, call a helpline for something and they would just talk to you in English. And now every helpline I call up, it's you know press one for English and <laughs> two for Spanish, right? And it's, it's, it's not because anyone dictated that, right? Nobody's telling them, the government's not telling them that they have to do that, but they get enough calls from people that don't speak English well, that speak Spanish fluently to where they've had to adopt that. And so I would guess that that's the direction that, that's going in there, right? They have enough people that are trying to figure out how to do it in TypeScript that they're just like, well, we can sell a whole lot more of these if we do it in TypeScript too. Yep. The
2: thing, thing with JavaScript is that it's, it's valid TypeScript as well. Like it's back, TypeScript is completely backwards compatible. Right. But the problem comes if the library that is providing those examples has complex types. One of the things that I faced recently was React, hook's, React Hook Forms. And it's an amazing library that I, I, I'm very happy that we found it. Because it's way, way, way simpler uh, than Formic or React Final Form or whatever. Like, it's so easy to use. It's, it's whatever you used to write and it was like, I don't know, 50 lines of code with Formic, it's now five, like tenfold smaller, more compact with the React form. But they, if, you, if you look at the typings that React form provides, it can be quite complex. And sometimes you cannot just import the type that they want you to use because they don't really want you to use the types directly. They want you to use type inference functionality of TypeScript, when TypeScript figures out types for you instead of relying on you providing it manually. And if you don't expect this, and they unfortunately don't show it in their examples, even though they have examples in TypeScript, they, it seems like in their configuration, they allow to have implicit any, which is like a very slacky approach of using TypeScript when you're like, yeah, sometimes I provide types and sometimes I accept any value. In my projects, I usually restrict this to not relying on any type. I usually like to be specific about what my functions accept as arguments. So when, when you try to transition their, their examples to, to more restric- restricted environment, you might face problems, which, which I had. And this is what I'm trying to show people in my book as well. This is why, for example, this... React plus TypeScript book is needed. Because oftentimes, even, even if they have examples, they're not in the context of real project where you're trying to get full benefits of using TypeScript by restricting usage of any. I'd actually be curious, are there any
3: other, like, say, TypeScript plus React best practices? Do you think, like, if, if anybody's listening to this and thinks, like, I'm going to try this, like, what's your top three or four things that people should
2: be aware of? There is an amazing handbook written by... Oh, Jesus. I'm very bad with names. I forgot the name of this dude. He's a proponent of open learning. You probably saw him in Twitter, and he has, I think, had tutorials. Jesus. I will send the link to this report. Uh, it's basically a cookbook with examples of how to do everything with React and TypeScript. It's just small uh, chunks of code, like how to define your functional component, how to define your class component, how to specify a type of your state in the component, and yada, yada. Amazing.
0: So let's say that I decide, okay, well, you know, in my React or react native app, I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger and I'm going to start, you know, using TypeScript. Do I need to go convert everything? I think I know the answer to this, or can I just start pulling TypeScript in a piece at a time and then go back and refactor things as I work on
2: them? You can do the letter. You can, you can gradually transform your code from JavaScript to to TypeScript. Well, what does that look like?
0: Like, what does that process? Do you just start doing .ts files, and you don't even
2: need to do .ts files. You, oh yes, .ts or .tsx. One thing that becomes important if you work in React project is that, for example, when you use JavaScript, it doesn't matter if your files are .jsx or or, or .jsx or .js. They're like it doesn't matter at all. Like you can make an additional hint for yourself. Like here, I have .jsx code, so this is .jsx file extension. But with TypeScript, it becomes crucial that if you have JSX and this is the HTML-like JavaScript syntax that allows you to write layout, which includes triangular brackets, uh, they're also part of TypeScript syntax. So if you don't want to have a syntax clash where the compiler doesn't know, like, okay, this triangle bracket, is it a React element or is it TypeScript uh, type assertion where you're trying to force some variable to be of certain type? then you need to let it know, okay, this is TSX. Here I will have those triangular, triangular brackets and they will mean that I'm using uh, an element. And basically gotcha. I think all, the, all, the, all the tricks that you all the important things that you need to remember because otherwise you just convert it to TypeScript and uh, by converting it is just you can start adding types gradually and then when you feel comfortable and you feel that you have resources and time to just uh, turn the 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 switch and start uh, being strict on your types. And there are several levels of of it. Like you can be a bit slacky, like allowing any if you need to do it. Or you can even allow implicit any when, for example, you don't provide the type information of some variable, and there is no way for TypeScript to know what what kind of value will it hold. It will just assume okay this is any value. And you can turn uh, a setting that if if you have such code TSLint will tell you, okay, look, you you have this unknown type for this variable. You you, you should provide some some type, some specific type for it. But this is something you can turn on and off uh, with with settings.
0: It sounds really simple. So why why do we need a whole
2: book on it then? (laughs) It sounds very simple on the surface. And to be honest, it is, most part of it, it is very trivial. What is untrivial is like, you have those things that you can do with TypeScript. And in uh, documentation, you can read, okay, you can do this, you can specify this type, you can use generics, you can provide types for your this and that. And my book aims to uh, provide you the context. Okay, I have this functionality, where do I use it? When should I use this specific type? Or should I even like, bother typing it manually here? And um, basically putting you, uh, putting you into a perspective like, okay, I have these tools, when do I use them? I can give an example of what I'm talking about in my current chapter that I'm trying to wrap up before beginning of May. It's about testing. And one of the things if you uh, write tests, you know sometimes you need to, to mock global variables. Like for example, you use some uh, API like local storage and you, you want to mock uh, the local storage functionality in your test. With the JavaScript, it's super simple. You just write Window, global, if storage equals just a fan, boom, it's, it's, it's a mock now. We just provide a mock object. With TypeScript, you first need to provide it an information that the global object, that in your case will be Window, will have uh, this local storage that will have this uh, form of it, for example. Or let's say you're writing Test Helper that not only renders your component, but also wraps it into a router provider, routing provider from React-DOM, so that you can test routing in your in your code. And with JavaScript, again, we just say global dot, render with router, and you just write this helper function. With TypeScript, again, how do you provide this type for the global variable so that it doesn't pollute the global scope in your application and it's only visible in your So this is what I talk about in the the book, very specific things like when you work on your project, how do you do that? And it's not that I go and uh, show the recipes. The book consists of uh, six applications. We start with a simple one. We build a Kanban board using uh, React and TypeScript. Then we go about uh, testing your application. And we use an online store as an example, and we gradually cover it all with tests trying to be as unit-based as, as possible, like not much of integration, but trying to isolate each uh, component with, uh, with mocks and then test it in isolation. The next one, uh, I'm talking about Redux and how to work with TypeScript in, with, with uh, Redux. Then server-side rendering, um, talking about Next.js and TypeScript. And oh, I forgot what, it's, what is the last two chapters about. Whatever, so basically we'll cover, oh, uh, GraphQL. It's GraphQL. With GraphQL, the coolest part is that you can actually generate TypeScript types for your data automatically. So if you have GraphQL schema that you get from your backend, you can automatically derive TypeScript types for it. That's super awesome. Yeah, I like that because it's one
3: thing that I always struggled with as a pain is like the model objects generally, like especially if you're in a big app and you have some complicated structure... Like it can just be a a pain to get right but it's also kind of important because if unless you actually go through and do that it kind of takes away from the whole point of using typescript in the first place
0: so one thing that i'm trying to figure out here as well is you know what's the benefit right i mean we keep hearing about types and how nice they are and the tooling is so nice but it feels a little bit abstract right i mean day to day it's it's okay but i already know javascript and I've lived without types for the last 5, 10, 20, 50, you know, however long you've been programming years, right? I guess if it's 50, you've probably done some strongly typed languages. But yeah, you know, so, so, so where's the benefit? I mean, the tooling, I've used TypeScript tooling on my JavaScript and it's super handy. So
2: I get that piece of it. So, but, but what am I missing? 15% less bugs. There is a paper that some dudes made the research showing that there is 15% less bugs if you use strongly, strongly typed language, I uh, don't have the link right here. I will, I will, I will look for it. I will write down, I'm, I'm, I'm writing down that I need to provide this. I have this in my book thing. The funny thing is that there is less research on the value of tests than on value of using static typing. At least it was harder to find some evidence that using automated tests brings you any additional benefit of like having less bugs. Because you know you test your software anyway.
1: At least does anyway. that does that mean that if I started using TypeScript, I would not have to write tests anymore? No! <laughs>
0: no, exactly.
1: <laughs> how I tried
2: how I usually Oh that was a protest. I didn't know the answer. <laughs> how I usually address this sort of like question, like what is what is the what is the reason for typing and tests. like What are those niches that they take? So the thing is, imagine if your application is a bunch of modules. You can cover each module or unit with tests and make sure that inside of them, they work correctly. But then you need to make sure that they interact properly and that they respect each other's uh, interfaces. And you can do this by using this uh, kind of contract-based programming. It is very hard to master. Like, you can, you can read it up how to do it. It's a very wordy way of making sure that your uh, modules interact correctly. Or you can use static type static language like TypeScript. It has its limitations because TypeScript is unsound. There are, there are ways to make it allow you to do invalid things, even without fetching some remote data or loading it from, from the disk. You can just trick it uh, into thinking that what it's doing is legit, but you will get random error. I can probably provide another link that shows how to do it. Do you find that you write fewer tests with TypeScript, though? Because I would think that if,
3: let's say, if you're testing just a straight up like at, a, at a unit level, like a function signature, like I, f- I feel like the first test you always write is, like, what happens if I pass this zero or null or undefined? And since TypeScript sort of prevents that at a compiler level,
2: does at least some of your test surface area go away? No, I would not say that I'm writing less tests because I never test negative scenarios. So if my component should break in a certain way, I don't test that it breaks in a certain way. What I'm interested in when I write, when I write tests, that the happy, happy way of using it works. Like I try to be as user-centric when testing my components as possible. And I usually t- test that it works as it should. If it fails, yeah, cool. I probably need to know as much information about the failure, but I wouldn't probably bother testing that the error message that it threw is actually legit or helps me. I don't care. Hmm.
1: Are you able to use something like React Testing Library to test the code that you're writing?
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. Actually, in my book, I'm using React Testing Library. I like it way more than, for example, Enzyme. Think thing about Enzyme, you have to learn a lot, to start using it because it doesn't really have a system of naming the querying thing is and it doesn't have system to, for expectations naming and the uh, react testing library is very easy to learn because it has like six prefixes like get by find by and, and such and it has a bunch of suffixes like by test id by text by label text by uh, role and and such you remember those Six thing in the beginning, six thing things in the end, and then you construct those names and you can easily remember, recall by mnemonic rules and the query querying function to find the element that you need in your layout. And then expect that it has some some sort of meaning. Also about tests, the thing is that I, I wanted to elaborate a little bit about testing only happy paths and like not testing that it breaks in a specific way. I, sort of come from Ruby background when it comes to tests because uh, Ruby was first environment where I started writing tests because they have very good test writing culture, I would say. When, when people ask me what to read about writing tests, I usually recommend the, the RSpec book. I don't remember exactly the name of it, but I, I think it's actually writing tests with RSpec. It's, it's amazing. It tells you everything from what to test it's a terrific book yeah you know it yeah i started this whole network on ruby rogues so yeah it's it's, a, it's an amazing book it t- tells you how to structure your tests how to describe them like everything how to name them and it applies totally which i'm very happy about it applies totally to uh, jasmine jest because those frameworks are sort of also bdd like like uh, respect because for example right now at work i sometimes have to write Python and work with Django and well to be honest it's like it's pain in the ass like it's not built to write tests for it like if you look at the, the frameworks that they use it's either nose or a Python Python test or Python test it's, it's it's like they're like from from 30 years ago you, you use function name to describe what your test is doing they don't have way of grouping them in. Some blocks of like, hey, with this data, I need, I expect this, this, and that. They don't have this described to group them by inputs, for example. And this is what I like to do in my tests to provide them some structure is I group them by inputs, like with correct data, boom, 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 a bunch of expectations. With invalid data, boom, 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 a bunch of expectations. So yeah, that's a lot of tests.
0: So one thing that I, I run into with people is, I, I think I've seen about a bazillion memes about any right and how evil it is or how it causes problems and you talked a little bit about you know there are some things that you can do in typescript that make it less effective and it sounds like that's probably the most commonly pointed out one is you know constrain things to be the types you expect so how do people start getting used to that and in some cases i'm actually going to have types that are like you said, complex types that are custom types, right? So it's, I have a user and a user defined in my system is going to be a different than a user defined in Pages system, right? Because she's working on something else and she cares about different aspects of the user. So so how do you start thinking about those kinds of things? Because one of the things that at least sounds a little bit overwhelming is, oh, wait, you want me to define my own types? You want me to define my own constraints? You know, how do I do that? And how do I do that without screwing stuff up?
2: Um, do you want to talk about sharing types, or how to, how to accept that you will probably have to define a lot of your custom types? <laughs> about, like, accepting, accepting, accepting this burden that, yeah, everything has a price. And if I want to have less bugs and like, enjoy more information during like, programming, uh, more hints from my text editor, I will probably have to describe some of the types I'm using.
3: Well, I'm sort of curious where you draw the line because like you said, like TypeScript is, you can use TypeScript without really using TypeScript. I know that I've done that a lot where you just rely on it to sort of implicitly figure out things. And I'm curious like where you personally draw the line of like, okay, I need to actually define like say an interface for this, this thing that I'm using. Is there a point at which like for you, is that beyond like I have a simple string or a number or like do you have a certain, process or procedure you use for making that sort of decision?
2: Well, for me, to be honest, the majority of types that I'm writing are interfaces for component props. That's probably the most common thing, common type that I'm using. Otherwise, I'm using, I'm relying a lot uh, on custom, custom hooks. We used to use MobX extensively. Now we are slowly migrating to custom hooks because when you can just move some, some logic to an object-like thingy that you can add the functions to update and the properties to store, it doesn't make sense to use Mobux. And I type I don't actually type return values that, that hooks return because this, is, this information is already there. TypeScript sees that, okay, you return, let's say we're working with profiles, the profiles array, Add profile, remove profile. You return them from the hook. Okay, Tabs already sees that you return those values. It can derive the types of them automatically. But then if you want to make sure that some component only accepts uh, prop, uh, profiles, and it should be of type, array of profile type, then you probably have to use an interface or a type to define type of your props. But that's it. It's, I, I wouldn't say I write many, uh, too, too many uh, custom types. I rely a lot on type inference, and TypeScript is very good at it.
1: You'll have to forgive me because I have a question that comes from not having used TypeScript pretty much at all. What is the difference between using TypeScript versus just having prop types in your components in React? Because that's what we do and try to, you know, have is required or have default props when props aren't supplied to a component. So... I know, you know, it doesn't break anything and the build will keep going and the compiler or the console will just throw an error. But how much of a benefit is it to use TypeScript instead of just having prop types on components?
2: Exactly. That's a good question. So, yeah, as you said, first of all, you will get the the error later. You will have to to have it in runtime so that it it is executed and then, okay, you pass uh, a wrong value to your uh, your component. Other than that, yeah, for, for components... It's basically quite the same. The thing is that you probably will have not only components in your React application. You'll probably have some code that uh, that is um, working with fetching data from 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 server. That is just some business logic that you have. I don't know with in, in, in Redux. Maybe you use Redux and Redux Sagas and something something some some other library that is not React and where you have a lot of code. And imagine then that you have your components, your your React application that has your prop types, everything is nice, you can track if all the props that you pass in there are legit and correct. And then you have this wild realm of unknown data passing around, like, how do you deal with this? And with TypeScript, you can provide types to anything. It doesn't have to be a React component, it can be some function, it can be an object, it can be whatever. Uh, Anything, you, you, you ensure that all parts of your applications interact in a specific way, that if your function only works with strings, you cannot even call it with a number. Like You can ensure that your compiler will yell at you when you try to do it. I I really like this definition of uh, static typing from, I think it's Jordan Pierce's book, Types and Programming Languages, if I recall it correctly. So there he defines it as a syntactic way of telling if the expression is correct. So if you use static types, you can look at some expression and tell, okay, it's invalid. We're trying to, the the types are are not matching when you try to combine them. And and I really like this definition because it's very short and concise. And that's what really it is. You provide a way for language to just looking at your syntax, tell if what you're doing makes any sense without even running it.
1: That's really good to hear. Thanks for clearing that up.
0: (laughs) So, how often do they wind up putting out releases for TypeScript? I mean, are we seeing it every six months or just whenever they get around to it? Or
2: I don't think they have specific schedule, but they do it quite often. And uh, this is one of those libraries that every time I see a new release, I'm, I'm quite happy because usually they have a lot of awesome stuff there. Like every release includes either something like, for example, one of the latest releases included optional chaining argument that will be included in JavaScript, but it will be there later. And this is thing that I was missing in JavaScript for, for years because in Ruby, it exists for a long time. You can easily write, let's say we have a deeply nested object that like user that has uh, address, that has can, uh, like a city and it has, oh, it, it's weird to chain. But what but, but you see the idea, like it's nested object with uh, some fields that can be null. And in Ruby, Mm -hmm. for a long time, you could just add the question mark before dot when you uh, request Mm -hmm. field of a field of a field. Soon you will be able to do it in JavaScript, but now you can already do it in TypeScript. It's amazing. And usually all the additions that they uh, introduce are this level of awesomeness.
3: Yeah, I just looked this up and this is, I didn't know I needed this, but I now need this immediately. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) optional chaining is amazing. I never, I didn't know this existed and (laughs) this is pretty amazing because I write this stupid code all the time, like if object and, and object.property, like it's, it's it's like JavaScript 102. You have to learn how to do that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, so when I was switching from Ruby to JavaScript, that was one of the things like, wait, what? You don't have that? Okay, how do you do it? Why?
1: <laughs> Why? <Yeah. laughs> Why, exactly?
2: I went through that a lot, switching
0: from Ruby to JavaScript. A lot of things is, what? what? <laughs> where's my nice syntax?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: And it's interesting, too, just to see how much of it gets adopted by the language, right, by language updates and proposals, which is where TypeScript adopts a lot of its features from and how much of it just gets kind of built in by somebody who finds a clever way of allowing you to do it by doing a quick NPM install of some package that gives you some nice syntactic sugar and makes sometimes, it possible.
2: Sometimes syntactic sugar is first introduced in JavaScript. Uh, there is a funny story about default uh, um, experts. So if you, you, you might not know, but React doesn't have default experts. It just experts an, object, experts an object with all the things that it has, like component, pure component, like whatever, everything that you have on uh, the React namespace, it's, it's one object that it exports. It doesn't have default. But when you use it, you've noticed that you just write import React without curly braces, like React is default export uh, from React, right? Yep. So in JavaScript, this happens because you most likely use React with some sort of webpack or parcel or whatever that bundles it for you. And usually those tools, they're, they're, they're smart enough to see that, okay, it doesn't have default expert and you're trying to import it as default, then, okay, I I will pretend that nothing happened and I will just give you this object as default. So they're, like, faking it, that faking the default expert. TypeScript, and JavaScript doesn't care. Like, whatever you write, JavaScript will be like, meh, let's see in runtime if it works. And for TypeScript, it's actually important that what you write makes sense because it syntactically tells if it's correct. And as React doesn't have default expert, for a long time, like I think up until this year, you had to write import asterisk as React from React library. And only recently, I think, yeah, I think it, it happened this year, when they adopted this uh, synthetic default experts, where they fake the default expert for you, and now you can write import React from React. So this is an example of adoption of some functionality from, in TypeScript from JavaScript realm. They were reluctant to it for a very long time, because... Syntactically, like TypeScript was right. Yes, React doesn't have default export. You had to write import asterisk as React from React. But it is so like annoying when you can just write import React from React in JavaScript. So, uh, in the end, they just agreed to okay, okay, yeah, whatever. Let's just add this
3: uh, option. I like your line in there. Like, let's see if it works at runtime. That that's just a good tagline for JavaScript in general. Just JavaScript. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's see what happens at runtime. Exactly.
2: I'm
1: curious. Have you written any Node code with TypeScript? (laughs) Is that a thing?
2: Yes, I actually teach two courses in Russia: one React and one Node. And yes, writing Node uh, like backend application because it's, it's not only Node because Node is an environment where you can write uh, where you can run uh, javascript not in browser but there is now deno that originally mm-hmm. supports typescript and uh, there is a bunch of ways to write typescript code that will run in backend first of all you can just write your typescript code and then transpile it to javascript here you go and then run it by nodes regularly another way is to use ts node that will just take it transpile on the fly and uh, run it for you or you can run deno that just supports this Syntax. There is a bunch of ways to do it in in Node.
1: Nice. The thing about
2: it is that it will be super easy for you to share types between backend and frontend. It's it's, it's amazing. Imagine on on the backend, you already know what type of information will you give to your frontend. And then you can package these types and provide them to your frontend team. And boom, they know what responses can they expect from your backend. That's amazing. Awesome. All right. Well we're we're kind of
0: getting toward the end of our time. If people want to find you online, Maxim, where do they find you?
2: They can find me. I, I think the most legit way to find me is on YouTube. Uh, this is the the social network where I'm most active right now. I'm publishing okay. videos, not very regularly. It says that it's weekly show. It's not even <laughs> it's not even monthly. I sometimes post videos. But they might be disappointed because we are talking about React and TypeScript here, but on my YouTube channel, somehow it's mostly about Firebase. It ended up being mostly Firebase because my th- most popular video, that is like 27 or more thousand views, it is about Firebase. And from that, they, I started getting questions like, how do this, how do that with uh, Firebase? And I started posting more videos. I'm thinking, how could I transition to more interest, talk to the topics that are more, more interesting for me, like TypeScript and React from Firebase? I don't know.
1: I think you just got to start doing what's interesting to you. That's how I kind of blog (laughs) is what I'm learning at work and what's most interesting at the moment to me.
3: Yeah, you got to follow your motivation or else you're going to like, that's the thing for me too. I'm I'm 100% guilty of saying like, I'm going to do this weekly and then it becomes monthly and then it becomes not do it at all. So really it doesn't matter how many views you have if you're not motivated to do the
2: work. Yeah, and the, for, for me, it's important that I know why am I writing about it. For example, when people ask me online how to do this thing, I know that I will help someone if I write this thing. If I'm just writing to, like, how can I write something to, my, like, to myself? Like, if I already know it, then what is the value of an article for me? I need to know that I'm helpful <laughs> for someone. So when writing this book, when I see that I'm stuck with something, for example, I thought that I know it, but when you write a book, you, you, you need to know it for real. You need to know, oh, okay, of course, I know how to Google it. It means that I have it in my head. I have this skill. Not really. Oftentimes, you will find that, okay, actually, how do I do it correctly? And then you struggle, and it might take several hours to figure out, okay, but, but really, if I cannot just not do it, and I need to, to write about it, you know that you are saving those hours of paying for other people who read your material. And this is motivating. So, this is why I'm still writing, still recording videos about Firebase because people ask, and then I'm like, okay, that would be helpful for them. Makes sense.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Paige, do you want to start us off with the picks?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. My pick this week is for all the free time that everybody has working from home. It's a book called The Name of the Wind. And it's written by Patrick Rothfuss. It is the first in a series of books called The King Killer Chronicles. And if you like fantasy at all, like Brandon Sanderson type fantasy or The Wheel of Time, this will definitely be right up your alley. It's, it's such a good read. It just kind of sucks you in. And I couldn't put it down while I was reading it. It was just that good. So I think that two of the books are out now and there's more to come, but I would highly encourage it if you need something to read that is completely based in another realm and another world with nothing to do with anything that's happening in our world right now, because it really just kind of takes you on a a great adventure. And it's been really a fun read for me.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an awesome book. Honestly, I just want to go shake Patrick Rothfuss and just make him finish it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know the feeling
0: because <laughs> the the first book came out in 2007, the second book came out in tw- 2011, and the third book is not out. So, <laughs> just like we got to have the rest of this story because it's <laughs> oh wow.
3: My one yeah. problem with fantasy genres is because that seems to happen a lot. Like you mentioned, the Wheel of Time. It's a, I got like six or seven books in, and then at the time they weren't done, so I just sort of stopped. And, yeah. I've, and now it's such an endeavor to go back and read through all that.
0: It's, it's tough. Yeah, the audiobooks make that easier. And, and the other concern, too, is, I mean, Robert Jordan did 10 books and then died. Yeah. yeah. And Brandon Sanderson finished them off. And he did a great job. I'm not complaining. But it's like, we, we just got lucky that Robert Jordan had a gazillion notes on it that Brandon Sanderson could use to write the last book, which turned into a trilogy. And, yeah, it's like, what, you know, I, I've, I've heard people reading, like, what is it, the Game of Thrones books.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's the same yeah.
0: thing, right? You know, if George R. R. Martin goes and walks across the street and gets hit, hit by a bus, I mean, that series isn't done either, from what I understand. I haven't read that one yet. But, yeah.
1: It is not. And we all think that George R. R. Martin is just never going to finish it. And HBO will have done it for decades. And he'll still not be done with the last book.
0: Well, hopefully it comes to a more satisfying ending than the TV series. (laughs) I'm a little bit afraid, honestly, with that series, since we're talking about this, that he told HBO how it was going to end. And so they ended it that way. And that, (laughs) anyway, that's how the series is actually going to end up. So we'll see. (laughs) Anyway, did you have another pick? I I didn't mean to jump in in the middle of that, but I really love that book.
1: No, that was that was my big pick for today. Is I know that I've in the past weeks I've done a lot of Netflix shows, and I needed to prove that I'm not just watching Netflix, but also still reading books. So. Have you watched Midnight Gospel? I'm sorry, which which show? Midnight Gospel. No, I haven't. Oh, it's amazing!
2: It's I think it's by what is the name? I'm so bad with names. Who made the Who made Adventure Time? It is. Pendleton Ward. So animation is, I think, his animation director, Pendleton Ward, but the show is based on it's based on a podcast where some dude, some comedian, forgot his name, (laughs) he is interviewing people and they're talking about very deep questions of life, death, like existential things, like how to how to cope with life. Like it's it's so bizarre. We just appear from nowhere and then we have to go to nowhere again. And this is the, um, more, more like the, the biggest topic that they discussed there. But also, like how, how to live human life. And all that, it's a, basically a talk show. They're really interviewing people. And all that is set in imaginary universe. So you listen to this talk show, and you see how a spacecaster, it's a podcaster who lives in space in some rainbow dimension. He goes through virtual uh, simulated universes and talks to people uh, or creatures there while the world around them is uh, going through apocalypse and basically last minutes of, minutes of existence and it's like it's so mind-blowing you're trying to grasp those topics they're talking about and it's like it's really deep usually and then in the meantime what is happening on the background is like it's so much it's so much stuff you can focus properly even it's amazing I really liked it I watched it this Sunday basically binge, binge watched the whole the whole season amazing
0: nice <laughs> Interesting. All right, TJ, did we
3: get your picks? I've got just one. It's a tool called OmniDisk Sweeper for the Mac. So if you've ever, like me, just went to look at how much space, free space you have and are wondering what in the heck is taking up those 300 gigs, it's a tool you can run for the Mac that just basically gives you a file tree, but next to it just very clearly flags, like ranked by, in this folder, what's the biggest thing? And it's a great way of spotting some multiple gigabyte things that you might not have known were there. So in my cases, I do, uh, do a lot of mobile stuff. So I had some like iOS simulators and Android emulators that were taking up like 10 gigs at a time that I wasn't using anymore that I was able to just quickly delete. And the other thing, too, is I found a script online, and I'll, I'll paste a link into this as well for the show notes, that's just a, a script you can run in your terminal that just clears all the node modules on your machine. So if you're also like me and you've created a random scattering of projects over the years and you don't want to necessarily delete them all because something in there might be valuable, you can just run a script to just kill all the node modules and that can clear up most of the space that that's taken up. So I dropped a few hundred gigs off my Mac yesterday. So if anybody else is trying to do the same, it's a pretty
0: handy tool for doing that. Nice. I'll jump in with a few picks. So I mentioned the conferences at some point. I think it might've been on the pre-call, but devchat.tv slash conferences. We do have a big JavaScript conference coming up in a few weeks as we record this. I think we might be further ahead than that though. If you are into React, you may want to go look at React Native remote conference, which is also at devchat.tv slash conferences. And then I've also been putting on remote meetups and you can check those out at devchat.tv slash meetups. I need to get Maze scheduled and see how that all goes. But yeah, during this whole COVID stay-at-home weird situation, I just want to create as many opportunities as possible for people to level up and also to interact with each other. And so we're working on all of that. And then I should pick something that I've been playing with or enjoying lately. My kids keep trying to buy... If you have your Audible accounts uh, connected to your uh, Amazon Echo, then your kids can buy books with your credits, it turns out. Oh, and I've returned this book twice and I finally just used one of my credits to pick it up and I listened to it because I was like, well, you know, and I'd seen the movies. It's the Percy Jackson and the Olympians books. So I'm in the middle of the second book on Audible right now and people have compared them to Harry Potter. They are not as good as Harry Potter. They're fun books. I enjoyed them. They are really quick listens, you know, like six, seven, eight hours. I'm used to the Wheel of Time ones that are like uh, 35 or 40 zillion hours or something. So, yeah, I mean, these just, you know, they pop on, pop off. I mean, they're real fast. So, I've been listening to those. I also tend to listen to books when I'm falling asleep. It just helps me kind of unwind my head a little bit. And I've been listening to the Iron Druid Chronicles, and those books are really, really fun. It's an urban fantasy, which means that it's magic in our world i guess harry potter technically is though they mostly takes takes place in their separate arenas in our world percy jackson is much more of a an urban fantasy right cuz they go through the current world and then they interact you know in places that have magic so those are super fun it's a little bit irreverent if that bothers you there is a little bit of cursing if that bothers you but it didn't meet my threshold so i've been enjoying them i i've listened to all of them before that's kind of what i do when i'm trying to go to sleep is listen to books that i've already listened to so if i miss part of it i'm like oh yeah i remember what happened in the middle anyway i'll pick both of those maxim do you have some picks for us
2: have you like speaking of harry potter have you have you read the harry potter, potter and the methods of personality hp more i've oh, heard of it that's that's an amazing that's the like that's so good it's uh, basically alternative version. Like I said, it's a fanfic, but it's one of those fanfics. I think it's one of either old, the only fanfic that was officially published, sort of. Like you can buy a physical book. And um, it's an alternative universe where Harry Potter was not uh, adopted by his uh, uncle Vernon and Petunia or something. Instead, mm-hmm. he was adopted, like his aunt married not, uh, what is the name? Vernon? Vernon something. Dursley. Yeah. Dursley, yes, exactly. So she married uh, Charles Evan Burst instead, and he's a Harvard professor. So Harry Potter was uh, brought, uh, like, raised in a loving family uh, and got an amazing education. He had access to the best books, best teachers, and mentors. And then, being very educated and rational, he goes to Hogwarts. And it's so good. This is one of the books that I couldn't stop reading. I was reading it at night. I think. Like I basically ruined one week at work because I was brain dead zombie like state because I I couldn't sleep. I wanted to continue reading it. It's a bit uh, a bit too becomes a bit too violent and gore goreish in the end. But then it gets back to normal. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything. And it's amazing because uh, this is book by why am I so bad with names today? Whatever, there is some dude who's talking about rationality. And this book is a great illustration of uh, rational principles and rational way of uh, thinking and uh, making decisions. So you're both, at the same time, you're reading a novel and uh, also learning about those uh, delusions that we have and uh, what is rationality. Nice. There is a whole community about, uh, around it. There is something, something and methods of rationality version of a book about almost every possible fictional character but harry potter is the most important and the most invested in like when you read it it feels very complete it's very high quality
0: awesome all right well i've got to jump off because ruby rogues is coming up next so thanks for coming maxim
2: yeah thank you
0: and thank you to our panel we'll go ahead and wrap this up till next time max out
2: bye bye